what we're doing at the moment is kind of, and in the lead up to Christmas, is we're doing a two-week series on uh, Elijah. Now, Elijah was a prophet who was a guy who heard from God and told God's people what God was telling them, who lived in the 9th century BC in northern Israel. And Rich kicked us off last week um, doing that, and he, he talked a little bit about Elijah, kind of Elijah's life outside of the public sphere a little bit. And what we're going to do this week is we're going to look at a story from the life of Elijah in the public sphere. Now, if this, if this is your first time, you might be thinking, what on earth is the point of looking at the story of a guy who lived in the 9th century BC in a very different part of the world, who, let's face it, was a very bizarre guy? What on earth can we learn from that? And well, ultimately, it comes from a conviction that we have as a church that all scripture is breathed out by God, that it's useful for teaching, for reproof, for correcting, for training in righteousness. So we genuinely believe the whole of scripture is for us to benefit from. But at the same time, there's something special with Elijah Well, if you read the New Testament, if you read the letter of James, which comes towards the end of the New Testament, James, who wrote that letter, ends up saying towards the end of it, he says, Elijah was a man just like us. And if you know anything about the story we're going to look at today, you might think, no, he's not. Like, it's completely different to us. The kind of stuff he was doing, like calling fire down from heaven, looks completely different. Um, Because the thing is, what the world does is it throws examples of people at us that we cannot attain to. And I realised that the last two preachers I've used an illustration for the Olympics, so I might as well keep the trend going. Um, so who watched the Olympics and watched Usain Bolt running and just thought, I wish I could do that? Come on, there must... Yeah, there were a fair amount of you. I was there sitting on the sofa with my cup of tea thinking, I want to run that fast. <laughs> looking at the 100 metres final, he's running in under 10 seconds, making it looking really easy. And you're just sitting there thinking, I wish I could do that. But there's something in you that knows there's no way you can do that. It doesn't matter how hard you train, you are never going to be able to run as fast as him because he's built to run and you're not built to run in the same way. Or you might think, okay, I want to to be like Mo Farah because he's British. We can kind of identify with that a little bit more and think, I want to beat the the Olympic record for the 10,000 metres. And you think, okay, I'm going to get up early, I'm going to get my jogging shoes on and you you decide to go for a 10K run and you get 10 metres down the drive and you decide, okay, I'm going to have to turn back because I don't want to go out in the cold and I'm already tired. And what the world does is it throws examples of people, standards to attain to that we just can't reach. And actually, when you read the story of Elijah, that can be what it feels like. It can feel like you're looking at this superhuman, very, very godly, unbelievably powerful man, and you think, how on earth can we be like him? What on earth can we learn from him? Well, the encouraging thing is James says he's a man just like us. What made Elijah special is that he was a man who followed God, and knew God's will in his life, and knew the power of God in his life. So as we listen today, what we can do is we can be encouraged by however incredible this story sounds, we can know that the man who was doing this in obedience to God was actually a man just like you and me. And for me, that encourages me, because I look at the story and I think there's no way I can do that. But actually, James encourages us. We can do those kind of things by the power of God, because he was a man just like us. It's the power of God that changes stuff. Um, so what I'm going to do is, just before we jump into the story, I'm quickly going to give you a bit of a catch-up on the background of, if you watch soap operas or something like that, there's a little bit of the story until now at the beginning. Does that happen at the beginning of EastEnders? I don't watch EastEnders. Does that, no, you don't get that? But if on certain series you get the beginning of it, where it says, what happened last week? And you've just got a few previews of what's going on. I won't have time to go into the story massively. Rich went into a little bit more depth than I'll be able to. But I'll just give you kind of the background story to what's going on. Essentially, in the 10th century BC, um, King David, who was the greatest king that Israel, uh, God's people, had ever had, uh, was the king. And like Rich said last week, it was a time, just an amazing time of prosperity, of obeying God, of God blessing his people. What happened after that is David's son Solomon, although the beginning of his reign started off pretty well, what happened is he ended up turning away from God towards the end. 
And what happened is God judged Israel by ripping the kingdom in half. And so what he said is, okay, because I want to be faithful to David, because I've promised to him that someone's going to come from his line who's going to free the world from all oppression, but, I, but there's this disobedience that go, that's going on. So what I'm going to do, I'm going to rip the kingdom apart. And so you've got the southern tribes, which are called Judah, and the northern tribes, which are called Israel. And what Rich explained last week is that the northern tribes end up having this downward spiral of just turning away and disobeying God. I mean, right from the start, the first king of Israel ends up making two golden calves and putting them on one at each end of the kingdom, which is a little bit of a clue that they're not doing too well in terms of worshipping gods. Because if you remember any of the Ten Commandments, you'll know that one of them is do not have other gods apart from me. And so you've just got this downward spiral. It's like the kingdom of Israel is on a collision course with catastrophe. It's like every single king you get is worse and worse and is just pushing the joystick down further and further. And this plane's just going straight down. And from time to time, you get someone like Elijah coming along, pulling up the joystick a little bit. So the plane just goes up, but immediately goes back down again. And, uh, and finally, in 722 BC, the Assyrians completely wiped out the, uh, the, the whole northern tribes of Israel. Because they turned away from God. And where we join the story is at a time where a king in the 9th century BC, where a guy called Ahab was on the throne. And uh, Rich read out last week from, uh, from 1 Kings 16, where it says that Ahab did more than any of the other kings before him to provoke the Lord to anger. So this is kind of, this is a bad, a bad guy as far as as far as we're concerned. And so that's where we join the story. And what Ahab did is he ended up marrying a Phoenician princess called Jezebel, who ended up bringing in loads of foreign gods. And one of those foreign gods is a guy that we shall see on the screen at the moment. In a bit. There we go. This is the god Baal. I thought you would like, or I say Baal, actually, but um, some people say Baal. This is the god Baal. Now, you might think that he looks a little bit weird, looks a little bit like an elf, and at Christmas that's kind of appropriate. But essentially, this was, this was the god that Jezebel brought along into her marriage with King Ahab. And what happened is... Israel turned away from worshipping the true God of Israel and turned to worshipping this God, who was supposed, basically, he was a storm God. He was supposed to give the rain. And so if you live in a society where you depend on the rain for agriculture, that's very attractive. You think, well, we're going to turn to Baal. We can keep going back to, to the Lord for some things, but we're going to turn to Baal because he promises rain. And what, hap- and what happens is that Elijah comes along, like Rich explained last week, goes to Ahab and says, until I pray, it's not going to rain anymore. In other words, he's basically saying, Baal, you have no power at all over the rain. He's saying, the Lord is the one who gives rain. The Lord's the one who gives storms. I'm going to block the heavens for three and a half years to show you that he has no power. And you might look at that and you think, you just look at that elfish kind of pathetic character and you think, seriously, they actually worship that? But the funny thing is, idolatry hasn't really changed that much. It's just got a little bit more glossy. So we don't have little figurines like that. We have fashion magazines or sex magazines or we want to pursue money or fame. They're a little bit more tricky to identify when you're actually in that culture. But it's still just as stupid. It's just that we don't happen to worship these figurines. We don't happen to worship this elf-like guy. But we've got to realise that idolatry is still as stupid as it ever was. And actually, when you look from the outside, you can laugh. But actually, when you're on the inside, it's often very difficult to to detect what is actually a false god in our lives. It's easy to look at other things and see, oh, that's that's just stupid. Why on earth would you worship that? And be completely blind to what we're actually worshipping. So that's kind of a little bit of the background. And really, my aim today is to challenge us 
I think I've, I've been reading the story for the last two weeks, and God's just been completely undoing me. And I just thought, okay, it's only appropriate that you guys get undone with me as well on this. Um, and when I met up with Rich two weeks ago to talk about what we'd preach on, we decided on Elijah. And uh, he let me take the prophets of uh, Elijah and the prophets of Baal, because that's a fun story to preach on. And I thought, yeah, we can preach on faith for miracles, and signs and wonders, and calling down fire from heaven. And so we went away, and Rich prepared his own sermon, and I went back and read a little bit more. And I came back a week later, and I said to Rich, I said, actually... I've been reading this, and I don't think this is. I don't think faith for signs and wonders of miracles is primarily what God wants to speak to us today about. In fact, that's not the primary impression I get when I read the story. And the thing I want to do today is challenge us on our obedience to God when it comes to mission, and our obedience to God when it comes in stepping out and obeying His promises. Because it's just I've just been looking at this story over the last two weeks and thinking there's a disconnect between my life and my obedience to God's command and what I see in Elijah. And so I've called, I've called this, I don't tend to name my preachers before they go on the website, but I've called this one, If the Lord is God, Follow Him. And that comes from a, that's from a verse in the passage that we're going to read, which is Elijah's challenge to Israel. If the Lord is God, follow Him. Okay, so we're going to read the story, and at the end, just to give you a heads up, we're going to have a response where we pray for each other, for boldness to step out and to obey God when it comes to mission, because we need boldness more than anything. We need it. We need the boldness of God in our lives to step out in obedience to what he's called us to do. So I'm going to read the story out. It's a whole chapter, so it's a little bit long, but it is a very exciting chapter, so it will fly by, and it's the word of God, so it can't be bad reading a big chunk out of it. Okay, let's go. So chapter 18, verses 1 to 40. So after many days, after after Elijah's been hiding away in the wilderness for three and a half years, the word of the Lord came to Elijah in the third year, saying, go. Show yourself to Ahab, and I will send rain upon the earth. So Elijah went to show himself to Ahab. Now the famine was severe in Samaria, and Ahab called Obadiah, who was over the household. Now Obadiah feared the Lord greatly, and when Jezebel cut off the prophets of the Lord, Obadiah took a hundred prophets and hid them by fifties in a cave and fed them with bread and water. So Jezebel has basically been cutting off all of the prophets of the true God so that she could replace them with prophets of this weird God that we saw earlier. Okay, and Ahab said to Obadiah, go through all the land and all the springs of water and to all the valleys. Perhaps we may find grass and save the horses and mules alive and not lose some of the animals. So they divided the land between them to pass through it. Ahab went in one direction by himself and Obadiah went in the other direction by himself. Now as Obadiah was on the way, behold, that means look, Elijah met him and Obadiah recognized him and fell on his face and said, is it you, my lord Elijah? And he answered him, it is I. Go, tell your Lord, behold, Elijah is here. And he said, how have I sinned that you would give your servant into the hand of Ahab to kill me? As the Lord your God lives, there is no nation or kingdom where my Lord has not sent to seek you. And when they would say, he is not here, he would take an oath of the kingdom or nation that they had not found you. And now you say, go, tell your Lord, behold, Elijah is here. And as soon as I have gone from you, the spirit of the Lord will carry you. I do not know where. And so when I come to tell Ahab and he cannot find you, he will kill me, although your servant has um, your servant have feared the Lord from my youth. Has it not been told, my Lord, what, Je- what I did when Jezebel killed the prophets of the Lord, how I hid a hundred men of the Lord's prophets by fifties in a cave and fed them with bread and water, and now you say, go, tell your Lord, behold, Elijah is here, and he will kill me? So the idea is, Elijah's a bit of a wanted man, if you kind of got the drift of that. And Obadiah's thinking, I can't, I can't go and tell Ahab that you're back because what happens if he doesn't find you, I'm going to die. 
just gives you a sense of how wanted Elijah is at this point. Verse 15, and Elijah said, as the Lord of hosts lives before whom I stand, I will surely show myself to him today. So Obadiah went to meet Ahab and told him, and Ahab went to meet Elijah. When Ahab saw Elijah, Ahab said to him, is it you, you troubler of Israel? And he answered, I have not troubled Israel, but you have, and your father's house, because you have abandoned the commandments of the Lord and followed the Baals. Now, therefore, send and gather all Israel to me at Mount Carmel and the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. So basically challenging to a showdown. Say, okay, I've come back to show you who the true God is. Go and gather all of the prophets of Baal, all of the prophets of Asherah, who was another goddess. And they basically, they would construct huge phallic symbols to worship her. It was basically the goddess of sex. And he says, go and get them, take them to Mount Carmel, and we're going to have a showdown. and We're going to see who the true God is. So verse 20, so Ahab sent to all the people of Israel and gathered the prophets together at Mount Carmel. And Elijah came near to all the people and he said, how long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. And the people did not answer a word. Then Elijah said to the people, I, even I only, am left a prophet of the Lord. But Baal's prophets are 450 men. Let two bulls be given to us, and let them choose one bull for themselves, and cut it in pieces, and lay it on the wood, but put no fire in it. And I will prepare the other bull, and lay it on the wood, and put no fire in it. And you will call upon the name of your God, and I will call upon the name of the Lord, and the God who answers by fire, he is God. And all the people answered, it is well spoken, which basically means, yes, we agree, not, oh, what oratory skills. I always find that verse interesting. So in other words, we've got this challenge where Elijah says, build an altar so we can imagine what the speakers on there is an altar. Okay, kind of be about the same size, but a little bit wider. And then another altar over here for the prophets of Baal. What we're going to do is we're going to take a bull, we're going to cut it up, we're going to put it one on each altar, and we are going to pray to our gods. You're going to pray to Baal, I'm going to pray to the Lord's. And the God who answers by fire, he is God. I think that sounds like a pretty good deal. Yeah, that's kind of fair enough. So the people say, yes, definitely. Okay. Then Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, choose for yourselves one bull and prepare it first, for you are many, and call upon the name of your God, but put no fire on it. And they took the bull that was given them, and they prepared it and called upon the name of Baal from morning until noon, saying, oh, Baal, answer us. But there was no voice and no one answered. And they limped around the altar they had made. And at noon, Elijah mocked them, saying, Cry aloud, for he is a god. Either he's musing, or he's relieving himself. He's gone to the toilet. Or he's on a journey. Or perhaps he's asleep and must be awakened. And they cried aloud and cut themselves after their custom with swords and lances, until the blood gushed out upon them. And as midday passed, they raved on until the time of the offering of the oblation. But there was no voice, no one answered, no one paid attention. Pretty pathetic spectacle if you think about it. There's 450 guys cutting themselves, running around an altar with a bull on top, going, Baal, answer us! It's just pathetic. But that's what idolatry is. It is pathetic. It doesn't deliver. It doesn't work. And here you see, no one answers. So uh, finally, Elijah says, enough. We're going to turn it around. So we pick up on verse 30. Elijah said to the people, come near to me. So imagine you're the people of God's. I happen to be Elijah at this point. Come near to me. And all the people came near to him. And he repaired the altar of the Lord that had been thrown down. And Elijah took 12 stones according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob. 
to whom the word of the Lord said, came, saying, Israel shall be your name. And with the stones he built an altar in the name of the Lord, and he made a trench about the altar, as great as would contain two seers of seeds. That's about seven litres per seer. So that's kind of like 28 litres. Okay. And he put the woods in order and cut the bull in pieces and laid it on the wood. And he said, fill four jars with water and pour it on the burnt offering and on the wood. So he's taking water and he's pouring it on the wood. And then he said, do it a second time. So he's taking another load of water, pouring it on the wood again. And do it a third time. And they did it a third time. And the water, water ran around the altar and filled the trench also with water. He's basically putting all his eggs in one basket. He's saying, there is no way this could just ignite spontaneously. I've completely covered it with water. He's so confident in the power of the true God to deliver and to basically show that he is God, that he's willing to completely drench the altar. And at the time of the offering of the oblation, Elijah the prophet came near and said, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and that I have done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God and that you have turned their hearts back. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones. It was so powerful, it licked up, it burnt the stones and the dust, and licked up the water that was in the trench. And when the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, The Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. And Elijah said to them, Seize the prophets of Baal, let not one of them escape. And they seized them, and Elijah brought them down to the brook Kishon and slaughtered them there. Now, this is a pretty crazy story, when you think about it. We probably, most of you will probably know this story. If you've ever been to Sunday school, you will have heard this story. In fact, even if you're not a Christian, you may have heard this story before. But even if not, you've probably got the impression this is a very dramatic story. And in fact, it's, it's kind of the climax of Elijah's career as a prophet. It's kind of like his high point. It's like, this is it, as far as, as, far as he's concerned. This is his big day in terms of showing that the Lord is God. But essentially, the whole thing revolves around a challenge that Elijah issues in verse 21. If we go back to the verse 21 on the slides, if we go backwards, okay, a couple more, and one more. Okay, so in verse 21, what Elijah does is he gathers all the people, and he says to them, how long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. In other words, what he's saying is, guys, you are going from Baal to Yahweh, who's the God of Israel, what we translate as the Lord, to Baal, to Yahweh again. So you've got to make your mind up. You can't go on limping between two opinions. Just notice the strength of the language use. You can't go limping between two opinions. Has anyone ever been in a football match before where a guy's got injured and decides, no, no, I'm I'm okay, I'm going to keep playing, and plays the whole of the rest of the game limping? And you think, just sit it out or stop limping. But don't play whilst you're limping. It's not healthy, and we're going to lose. Every time you get the ball, you're going to lose it because some guy's going to come along and take it from you. Limping is not healthy. And Elijah's saying, you can't compromise the worship of of true gods with the worship of Baal. You've got to stop limping. I don't know if, if... I've joined Facebook again recently in the last few days, and I'm still horrified to see that the maybe button is there on events, when you invite people to events. Limping is like the maybe button. It's like, I'm not sure I'm going there. I might be open to another offer. I might go there. But Elijah's saying, stop it. No maybes. No limping through the game. You need to decide. If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, follow him. 
And I wonder if Elijah was in our culture today, obviously he wouldn't talk about Baal because no one worships that elf-looking guy. But what he might say is, how long will you keep limping between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if sex is God, follow him. If sex is God, give up going to church, sleep with as many people as you can, surf on porn as much as you want, because sex is God. But if the Lord is God, follow him. But don't live this double life of, I'm going to praise God on Sundays, and then in the week I'm just going to spend my time on internet porn, and it's okay, God's okay with that. He's not. If the Lord is God, follow him. But if sex is God, follow him. He might also say that with fame. If the Lord is God, follow him. Give your whole life to him. But if fame is God, then don't worry too much about God, but just kind of be the, ne- be the, the big thing. Be famous. Pursue it with all your might. But don't have this limping between two opinions. In other words, he's saying you've got to make up your mind. Who's God? Is it the Lord or is it all of this other stuff? Now, you might listen to that and you might think, okay, yeah, fair enough, I get that. And to be like some of you, some of you that actually that may be your position, in which case I would, I'd issue that command, that challenge and say, Decide for yourself, who's God? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if this other thing that you're following is God, then follow that. But don't think that you can just limp between, it's not healthy. You've got to decide, who's actually going to be God in my life? And if you're kind of living that double life, there's freedom that comes through the Spirit. There's freedom that comes. So I'm not kind of preaching a message of just decide and grit your teeth and go for it. It's a message of decide in your heart, who is God for you? And then follow him with all your might, because he will enable you to do that because of the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross and the spirit that's been poured out. But I'm getting a bit ahead of myself there at that point. I'll come back to that later. So we, we might listen to that and we think, yeah, no, but to be honest, I don't really struggle too much with that. that. I don't have that sense of limping between sex and God. I don't have that sense of limping between fame and God. And I was kind of reading that and thinking, yeah, I don't, I, I don't, that's not really my struggle either. But then I, I thought of it from a different point of view. And for me, this really stung, and it might sting for a lot of you, but I want, it, I want this to sting There's good news coming, don't worry. But I want this to be a real challenge to us. If the Lord is God, follow him. But if passivity, reputation, and comfort are God, then follow that. Don't limp between two opinions. If comfort, passivity, and and your reputation are God, then don't bother sharing the gospel with people. Don't do anything that's going to make you look stupid. Don't step out in faith and pray for someone to be healed because you don't, don't take that kind of risk. Because if that's God, then go for that. But if the Lord is God, then follow him. And that, that thing that Gabriel prayed out, I just thought that, was, that fitted in exactly with just what I feel God wants to talk to us about today, which is just kind of, he's saying, rain. Rain in me Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, every day of the week. And I just believe God's challenge to us today is actually, let, let's look at ourselves. Let's not kind of over look at ourselves. Let's not, like, I don't want this to be a condemning guilt word because I'm, to be honest, I'm probably preaching to myself more than anyone here. And if you guys are all fine, then I'll just preach to myself and you can listen in on me preaching to myself. But I just, there's, I just get a sense that this might be something that a lot of us struggle with. Where are, are we limping when it comes to reputation, comfort, passivity, when it comes to proclaiming the, the gospel of God in our culture? And for me, I know that is it. I, I know this is the big one. I look at my life and I think, I think I'm limping many times. And I just look at number of times I've had an opportunity to pray for a colleague at work or to share the gospel with them. And at that point, I just, it's, it's like I kind of go, no, I'm just going to limp. And I just think, I just, I don't want that. Because I want in my heart that the Lord would be God. And so I want to follow him with everything I do. And so what we're going to do is we're just going to quickly look 
at Elijah, who is a man who, in this story, by any standards, you could not say has put reputation, comfort, and passivity as his gods. So we're just going to look at a few things that he does, and ultimately we're going to see how Jesus completely, perfectly embodies that. And um, it it may feel heavy, it may feel stinging, but I think that's a good thing, as long as it doesn't drive us to despair, but drives us to God. And I want us to be the kind of people who say, no, the Lord is God's, Let's not put passivity and comfort in the way. Let's, let's get rid of that. And let's live for God. Let's proclaim the gospel. Let's pray for the sick to be healed. So let's just look at a few things that Elijah does in this story. If we can go to the first slide of the story, we'll just kind of take a few things. What goes on is that at the beginning, um, so when it says at chapter 18, verse 1, it says, After many days the word of the Lord came to Elijah in the third year, saying, Go, show yourself to Ahab, and I will send rain upon the earth. Verse 2, so Elijah went to show himself to Ahab. First thing you notice in this passage is God commands, go to Ahab, and Elijah goes. There's no, there's no kind of arguing. There's no thinking, God, I'm kind of comfortable with the widow of Zarephath at the moment. In fact, just getting to know her son a little bit more. We're getting on really well. No, he hears God say, go and show yourself to Ahab, and he goes. And just to kind of illustrate this idea, if, um, uh, um, who would I ask to be? Mark Johns and Tom Allen. Are you? Where have you gone? Oh, there you are. Has Tom Allen left? He's in Krish. Okay. Would anyone like to be some... Yeah, Dan Watkins, you can be whoever <laughs> you are about to be. Okay. Just kind of for you guys to visualize it. There are kind of two ways a lot of the time that we can think about... I think that we think about the Christian life. And one of this, them is to have a civilian mentality. Now, Mark here is a civilian... And so that means he's not involved in any armies or whatever. He's not a soldier. And so if I was to say to Mark, look, Mark, I've got a problem with my time. It's running out of battery. I need you to go to the back and to get the guy on PA to, to sort it out. What Mark might do at that point is he might think, that is a really big problem. Yeah, if, if, if the, if the time might goes, no one's going to be able to hear you. Someone needs to do something about that. Yeah, no, someone really, like, let me, but uh, here's my phone. And uh, I've found, oh, there's a thing on Facebook. I'll get around to it at some point. You see that civilian mentality is not necessarily of thinking, my general's spoken, I'm going to do something. Whereas, however, if I was to turn to Dan, who is a soldier, who is a man under authority, and I'm his general, and I say to him, Dan, I've got trouble with my time, Mike. I need you to go to the back right now and to tell the guy on PA that I need some new batteries. What's Dan going to do? Off you go, Dan. (laughs) Go for it. Come on. Dan, go. That's why I chose Tom Allen. (laughs) It's all right. Thanks a lot. Thanks a lot, guys. Okay, really, really simple. Okay, really simple illustration. Dan went to do it. He heard the orders of his general, and he said, my general's told me I'm going. You see that with Elijah. Elijah doesn't have a civilian mentality. He doesn't hear God and say, that's a really good suggestion. I should think about that a little bit more. Or, that's that's true, yes. Someone really needs to go and talk to Ahab at some point, because he's just gone off the rockers. He hears God... Say, go, show yourself to Ahab, and he goes and shows himself to Ahab. And I don't think it's a coincidence that so many metaphors for the Christian life in the New Testament are using the metaphor of a soldier rather than a civilian. In fact, there's a verse that says, a soldier does not get entangled in civilian pursuits. Because the point is, if the Lord is God, we need to follow him. Now, that doesn't mean you shut your mind off. That doesn't mean there's no room for thinking. The soldier processes what's going on. He processes the word that's coming to him. He thinks about it, but... He acts, and he acts immediately. And 
He acts in a way which no matter what the cost, he's going to do it. If you just think about what, what this means for Elijah. Now, we read this story of hindsight because we know that God responds by fire. We know that God answers by fire. And so we think, okay, this is cool. Elijah's going to have his big moment. Think about it without hindsight. What God has just told Elijah to do is go show yourself to the man on the face of the planet who wants you dead. And go and show yourself to him and tell him, I'm the true God and I want to demonstrate that to you. Basically, he's sending, essentially sending him into the jaws of death. But you don't see Elijah saying, I'm a bit little, little, no, I'm not too sure about that. Elijah said, no, the Lord is God and my comfort comes behind that. The Lord's spoken, I'm going. Yeah? And you see that later. You see that later when Elijah's, with all of the stuff that Elijah's doing. I mean, there's just such zeal and faith for God in this man that he's heard God speak and he sets up this whole showdown thing and makes fun of the prophets of Baal. Imagine if you're the only one versus 450 people who, if God doesn't answer by fire, is going to get, absolute, is going to get slaughtered. And he stands there and he mocks their gods. And he says, come on, guys, how long are you going to keep limping? There's a soldier mentality to what Elijah does, where he says, I've heard God speak, I'm going for it. I'm obeying. And you see this with Jesus. You just see Jesus, a man, again, under, under authority. God's has sent him into the world, has given him a mission to do. I mean, there was no one who had such a sense of destiny as Jesus. I mean, you just look at his life. It's kind of like, it's one track. It's like, I am not letting anything distract me from my purpose. My zeal for God and for obeying God is such that I will go anywhere. I will do anything he asks me to do because I am so passionate about his glory that even if it costs me my life, and I know it will, I'm going to do it. And you see Jesus walking into Jerusalem, going into the temple, throwing over the, the tables of the money changers. Just, just as a side point, most historians reckon that that was what did it for the chief priests and the scribes. When Jesus went to the temple, turned over the tables, most historians reckon that was the straw that broke the camel's back for the, for the chief priests and the Pharisees. Jesus knew what he was doing. He knew exactly what it would cost him. But if you read the account of, in John of Jesus going into the temple, overturning the tables, what it says is the disciples remembered, zeal for your house will consume me. And there's a zeal that you see when Jesus sets his face towards Jerusalem and says, it's going to cost me my life, it's going to cost me my comfort, it's going to cost a lot, but God's commanded me to do this, and the Lord is God. You just see that completely personified because he had that soldier mentality. And you see that with the early church as well. You see that if you, if you, if you read the book of Acts, you, you see these guys who are just on fire for God. They've heard the commission, they've heard... Go and make disciples of all nations. And they say, well, we've got to do it. And so you just see them walking into situation after situation after situation where they say, we're laying down our comfort, where they're being tortured and beaten. But what you read Acts and you think, why are they rejoicing? Why are they rejoicing after getting put in prison? Why are they rejoicing after getting beaten? Why are they rejoicing at the fact, as I read in, in, in Acts 5 yesterday, that they were counted worthy to suffer for the gospel? There's a zeal and a soldier-like mentality there which just, I mean, for me, I look at my life and I think, oh, I think I'm limping. I think, I'm, I think there's a sense in which sometimes I'm just like, I'm limping. Because I look at my life and I think, okay, it takes me so much courage to pluck up the courage to just pray for one of my colleagues. When I look at the book of Acts and I think, wow, these guys were laying down their lives daily. And I don't want this to come across as condemnation. We're going to pray for each other later, actually, for supernatural boldness, because that is what it was. 
It's not like some kind of stirring yourself up to do stuff. But we've got to, we've got to let the truths hit us where we see these guys who said, the Lord is God, my comfort and my passivity and reputation aren't. I need to run and I need to obey that. There's an amazing story that I, I really like listening to of a guy, a missionary who went to, I think it was some Middle Eastern country, I can't remember exactly which one, and he was smuggling Bibles to, for church leaders over there. And what happened is at, at one point he got caught by the army with this big bag of Bibles and they kind of stopped him, pointed their guns at him and said, right, put the bag down, come up here into the car. And they search him and they find a Bible in his pocket and his other pocket everywhere. And they say, where are you from? And he tells him where, where he's from. He says, who told you you're allowed to come here and do this? He says, do you have authorization to do this? And he said, yes. And they kind of looked confused. And they said, who? Who gave you that? He said, was it, was it, was it Palestine? He said, no. Was it Israel? He said, no. He said, UN? No. He said, US? No. And he said, who was it? Where is your authorization? And then he said, my authorization's in my bag. Can I go and get it? So they let him go and get it. Walks up to the bag, picks another Bible out of the bag, goes up to them, opens up at Matthew 28 and says, go and make disciples of all nations. Our commander's spoken. Sometimes we can, I think sometimes we get into the mentality where we're like, well, we, if God tells me to do something, I'll do it. And I think that a lot. I think, would I be willing, if God told me to go to this country or that country or do something really hard, would I be willing if he actually told me to? And what I forget is, actually, as much as God may not have called me to a particular country or to do a specific thing, he has called me to make disciples of all nations. He has called me to that task. Our commander's spoken. And we need to have that soldier-like mentality where we say, the Lord is God, we're going to follow him. Just like Elijah, just like Jesus, just like Paul. You look at Paul, the guy was shipwrecked, beaten, tortured. But in Acts 20, there's this moment where he's speaking to a load of elders from the church in Ephesus. And he says, now I'm going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit. And he says, I don't know what's going to happen to me. He said, the only thing I know is that the Spirit's promised me that in every city I go to, there will be tribulation and imprisonment. He says, but I don't count my life as worth anything to me. If only I might finish my course to testify to the grace of God. You just see, there's a man who says, the Lord is God. I'm not going to limp. I'm not limping. I'm following him whatever it takes. You see that with the early, early Christians. Just if, you read some, like, if you're interested in that kind of thing, you read some ancient accounts of what was happening to Christians in the first couple of, centuries, couple of centuries, and it's just horrific. But one of the funny things is that there, there is a... I can't remember where it is, but there's a reference to someone torturing Christians, trying to get them to deny the faith. And he says, if they... It's like trying to get them to deny the faith, and it's, there's a little comment that says, which apparently no true Christian can do. I just love that line. He says, apparently no true Christian. And you're just like, there's a resolve on these guys where they will get ripped to shreds in Roman arenas because they've heard the command of God. You need to follow me. And so if they do anything else, then they're just like, we can't. We can't limp. We can't. It may cost us our lives. It may cost us our families. It may cost us everything. But we have a commander in heaven who's spoken and we are soldiers under his command. The Lord is God. We must follow him even if it costs us our lives. There's a, a quote from a guy called Michael Ramsden. I don't know if any of you have ever heard him preach. If you get a chance to, just Google Michael Ramsden on YouTube. The guy is insanely clever. 
but he's also, you just, there's, there's a passion for God's glory in the nations on home, and you just listen to his stuff, and every time I listen to him preach, I'm just like, oh, that's me. I'm, I just, I'm, I want that kind of zeal, and he, he basically, uh, he's, he's a, I think he's European director of the Ravi Zacharias Trust, which is an apologetics um, charity that goes on in Oxford, but what he also does is he travels to lots of difficult places in the world to, to, pre- to preach the gospel, and he was interviewing a man who was applying to their school at one point, a guy who used to be in the, in the SAS, used to be in the special ops. And uh, he was in there for like 20 years or something, which apparently it's rare to actually survive that long in the special ops. And he, and he was interviewing him, and he said, "Why you, you were in the special ops, you were in the SAS, why do you want to do apologetics now? And the guy said, well, I want, I want to train up and I want to go to some of the countries that you go to. And he said this, he said, I became a Christian a few years ago, and when I was in the special ops, we would work in small units and we would do anything to accomplish the mission we'd been given. There was no sacrifice that we could have been asked to make. There was nothing that we could have been asked to do. There was nothing that was too dangerous that we could have been asked to complete that we were not prepared to do. We had each other's backs. We were totally dedicated to each other and to the mission because we believed in what we had been asked to do and the importance of it. Now I've become a Christian. The mission and the vision that God has given me is more important than, any gov- than anything any government has ever asked me to do. And here's my question. Where's the commitment in the church? Where's the willingness to suffer? Where's the willingness to pay the price? Where's the willingness to do that which is hard? Where is the willingness to lay down your life? I don't see it. And I heard that. I just heard him say that. And I thought, wow, am I limping? Am I limping? Am I saying comfort? and the Lord of God. I just want to finish this section by reading something out of Hebrews 11. Hebrews 11, big chapter on faith. Big chapter on seeing God break out in amazing ways. And verse 32 says, What what more shall I say? For time would fail to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David, of Samuel and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. Amazing. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were killed with the sword. They went around in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. God breaks through dramatically many times, but it always costs something. If we want to see God break out in power in the UK then it's going to cost us at least convenience. It's going to cost us at least our reputations. It may cost us our jobs. I don't think it's unrealistic that in the next few years, if we share the gospel at work, it may cost us our job. Will we still be preaching the gospel when that happens? I just look at my life and I think, I want that. I want to be preaching the gospel when that happens. I don't want to limp between two opinions. So we've got our command, go and make disciples of all nations. But we've also had a load of promises made to us as a church. One of them particularly that I just love is that we'd be known for the supernatural. And we've already started to see breakthrough in that area, but I've got a bit of a revelation for myself and for you is that we're not going to see people healed unless we actually step out and pray for the sick to be healed. We're not going to see God give us miraculous signs and wonders unless we're actually willing to inconvenience ourselves and to risk the shame 
and the rejection that comes with praying for people to be healed. We must do something. We must step out. We must do something. There's no, way, there's no two ways around it. Jesus didn't say plan A, go and make disciples of all nations. And if we can't manage, then there's another plan B. That is, plan A is plan A. There's only one. We must be willing to lay our lives down for the gospel. We must. And I know at this point, some of you are probably, some of you might be thinking, yes, we need to go and do this. Let's take on the world for Jesus. Let's go and die. Let's lay our lives down. Probably the majority of you, along with me, are thinking, I am absolutely terrified at that idea. I'm terrified at the idea of it costing my life, of it costing me any, anything. I'm terrified at that. And so my last question, and really this is where the good news comes in, is how on earth did Elijah and Jesus and the early church end up living like that? How on earth was it? What was it that made them so zealous for God, so bold and courageous that they were willing to give everything up for the sake of the gospel and joyfully do it? What was it? And you might think, well, it's probably seeing God break out in signs and wonders. It's probably seeing amazing miracles because that builds faith up. Yes, it does. But I don't think that's what it is fundamentally. Because you look at someone like Peter, I think arguably he saw far greater things than Elijah ever did. He saw Jesus transfigured. He saw Jesus raising the dead. He was there when Jesus stood in front of the tomb of Lazarus and said, Lazarus, come out. And a guy who'd been dead for about two or three days came out wrapped, wrapped in linen cloth. And was, he'd, he'd started to rot already. And Jesus rose him from the dead. But then you see Peter running away and rejecting Jesus when Jesus is arrested. So I don't think actually, I don't think witnessing the power of God is primarily and fundamentally what does it. But I can tell you what does do it. Because you've got Peter who runs away, denies God three times at the crucifixion. And a few months later, he is willingly being arrested, beaten, persecuted, and proclaiming the gospel to thousands. What was it? It's the Holy Spirit. We ne- There's no two ways about it. Courage and boldness and zeal for God for proclaiming his glory and proclaiming his supremacy and proclaiming the gospel comes by receiving the Holy Spirit. No two ways around it. You see a group of cowering people gathered together at Pentecost. When the Holy Spirit comes on them, that's it. There's no restraint anymore. And you see that actually when they pray in Acts. It's just an interesting point. If you look through the book of Acts at how the church pray, there's no, there are no prayers in the book of Acts for people to become Christians. I'm not saying we shouldn't pray for that because I don't want to get in trouble for that. We should. I think we should. But the interesting thing is, what did the early church pray for? They prayed for boldness. They prayed for the ability to keep speaking the word with boldness. You get that in Acts 4. It says, God, give us the ability to keep speaking your word in boldness as you stretch out your hand to do signs, wonders, and miracles. There's an assumption that God is going to act as we step out. And they saw dramatic, amazing things. And so many, many thousands of people around the world who are giving their lives up, who are being tortured and suffering the most horrific things. But there's a joy and a zeal that comes with it because they are filled with the Holy Spirit. And so actually it kind of, it's almost like the response to this sermon is not going to be a, come on guys, let's take the world for Jesus, let's suffer, let's die. Because that doesn't do anything. Some of you guys might feel, might feel kind of like, yeah, that's really it, let's go and do it. And you'll go out you will burn out after a while if you do it in your own strength. And the rest of us will just stay here going, I can't, there's no way. We need the Holy Spirit. We need the Holy- I love it, just finish on this, I love the story of a guy called Terry Virgo who came to preach a few months ago. 
who just said he would see people preaching on the street when he was young, when he just became a Christian. And he'd see people making fun of them, and he'd say he would want to go up to them to try and tell them about Jesus, and he said he just couldn't. He said he just could not do it. And he said a few weeks later, he got baptised in the Holy Spirit. He said everything changed. Absolutely everything changed. He said there was a boldness that came with that that he just didn't have before. And so what I want us to do to respond, we're not going to get the band up immediately. What I want us to do is I want us to pray for each other. I want us to pray for each other that we would be filled with boldness and the Holy Spirit. And uh, I think maybe good ways, if we just all stand, let's just stand together. And um, I think if, if, you, if you particularly, as you, were, as you were hearing this, you thought, you know what, I, I just feel I'm limping in this area. It's just, it's a big deal for me. Then if you could just stick your hand up. I think that would be, that'd be great. And we, can, we will gather people around you to pray. We're going to all pray for each other. We're going to all do that. But just particularly people who are thinking, that's the big deal for me, stepping out in boldness. Say, the idea of it costing my life is just pure folly. The idea of it costing my reputation scares me. And if that's, if that's you today, just stick your hand up. Just give you guys a few minutes. That's probably going to be a lot of us. I know that for me that's true. I, just, I need the power of God in me. And so what we're going to do, okay, if... if if, if you haven't got your hand up, or even if you do and you're just like, there's just not enough people, let's gather around each other and let's just have a time of praying for the Holy Spirit to fill, to fill us. Because there is no way, there's no way we are going to change this country with the power of the gospel unless the Holy Spirit gives us boldness. It's just not going to happen. If we're not willing to lay down our lives gladly, then just not, it's not going to happen. But we need boldness. So let's we just do, and Rich, Rich will pick, pick this up in a few minutes, but let's just get around each other and pray for boldness, and then we'll join back, we might join back together and, and praise later, we'll see where God takes us. But let's pray for each other, let's pray our best prayers and expect God to fill us with the Spirit as we do. Maybe actually, for some of you, maybe you've never been filled with the Spirit, and if that's you, please grab someone and say, can you pray for me, I really want that. But all of us, let's just gather around each other and pray for boldness and for filling with the Spirit so that we could say, the Lord is God's. The Lord is God, we're going to follow him.